This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Exodus chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me, we will, we will look into, into the Word of God and see, uh, see some things that the Lord uh, was giving me in the last few days, and uh, we'll see uh, where this goes. I don't intend to take a long time, but uh, sometimes I do, my wife tells me, and, uh, and others, I'm not just going to joke about her, <laughs> but uh, we'll do our best to be, to be brief, but to be thorough as well. So please pray for me as we, as we go into this time. In Exodus chapter 4, we come into the middle of a conversation between God and Moses at the burning bush. Specifically, this comes in the middle of four responses from Moses. Moses has basically four things to say during this encounter. And he asks God a couple of questions and then he has a couple of responses to him. Uh, the first thing is uh, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses asks God, who am I? Uh, where God says, uh, I've chosen you to do a task for me. And Moses says, who am I? And then in verse 13, Moses asks the question, who are you? Uh, who am I supposed to tell the Israelites that, that you are? I, the God of the Israelites have come to me, but what do I tell them your name is? The answer to the question, who am I, God does not answer it and say, well, Moses, you are, you're the great Moses, the son of Amram and Jochebed, and, uh, the, the brother of Aaron and Miriam, and you're the one who was raised in the palace. And he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't boost Moses' ego or try to give himself assurance. The response from God when Moses asks the question, who am I, God says, I will be with thee. That's who you are. You're a servant of mine, and that's the only thing that matters. And then when God is asked the question, who are you? He answers, I am that I am. I am the self-sufficient one. I am the all-sufficient one. And it really doesn't matter who you are. It just matters who I am. And then in verse 1, Moses uh, gives a response to this call of God. And he says, they won't listen. They won't believe me. And God had already said that, that Moses words wouldn't get a response back in in chapter three he said you'll, you'll go tell pharaoh let my people go and he will not hearken to you he will not listen but he'll react to my actions and my uh my doings and then down in verse 10 of chapter four uh moses says well I, i'm a slow speech i can't speak i'm not a talker can't do this why is it important if you can't speak if they're not going to listen, you know? But uh, anyway, Moses attempts to give God several different excuses and reasons why not to use him. But um, we come back to verse 1 here. Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? That's going to be the title of the message I'll preach to you tonight. What is that in thine hand? What's in your hand? Moses answers, he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. You probably are familiar with this story. And he cast it on the ground, it became a serpent, and Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod. 
in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. I don't know about you, but if the Lord asked me to cast down a stick to the ground, I'll do that. I'm going to do that. But then if he asked me to pick up a snake by the tail, I don't know how willing I'd be to do that. But he asked the question, what's in your hand? And what was in Moses' hand was a rod. We see what happens here immediately when Moses does this. Uh, This rod is what would be used to show signs to Pharaoh, the very first miracles that Pharaoh would see in his hand. Not only does the rod become a snake here, but it does so in Pharaoh's palace, and it actually eats the snakes that the Egyptian magicians are able to produce. With this rod, Moses summoned the plagues of water turned to blood, hail, and locust. This rod would go on to smite the Red Sea, and in response, God would part the water so that the Israelites could pass through. This rod would be used to smite the rock, and water would flow from it, not just once, but twice, actually. This rod would be raised to the sky in Moses' hands when Israel fought the Amalekites. When Moses' hands grew heavy, you know that he would lower it, Amalek would win. When his hands were raised, Israel would win. So remember that Aaron and Hur stood on each side and held his hands up. The rod appeared to be really something. You might think that this is a really, really special stick. In the Jewish Midrash and Agadah, their commentaries and their narratives, they would write legends in many cases. Uh, It is written that this rod was created from a branch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the sixth day of creation, just before the eve of the Sabbath when God would rest. In reality, this was a branch of some old common tree that Moses used while he was tending sheep for his father-in-law. There was nothing inherently special about the rod. It was not magical. It did not hold special powers. What made the rod useful, what made it appear to be of any value, was that it represented the entirety of what Moses had under the control of the Almighty God. And I ask you tonight the question that Moses, the question that God asked Moses, what's in your hand? And I thought about walking through the congregation tonight and taking a look, see what's in your hand. If it was a Bible or a cell phone or a pen or some handheld video game system or or what exactly is in your hand um, to see who's watching the NFL playoff game in their lap, to see what's going on. Uh, but I've chosen not to do so. You all thank me for that. But what I mean when I ask the question, what's in your hand, I'm talking about what is it that belongs to you, either as a physical object, a talent, an interest, possibly the sum of your experiences, or the indescribable intangibles that make you, you. What is in your hand? And I'll ask this question, if you want God to use you, and by the way, not everybody does, but if you want God to use you, let me first make some statements that may not be completely obvious. First of all, 
God wants to use you. He really does. Uh, you might think you have nothing to offer. You might think that your past renders you useless to God. You can come up like Moses with a thousand excuses and reasons for God not to love you or God not to use you. But I can say with all certainty that God loves you and that God wants you and that God wants to use you. How do I know this? To pick one verse out of the many, Psalm 29, 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And in that, we see that God deserves to be glorified, and in some unique way, he can receive the glory from your life if you offer what's in your hand to be used of him freely. God wants to use you, and I can also say that your pastor wants you to be used by God. Amen. Uh, and you got to get one that way. Ephesians 4, verses 10 and 11. As a matter of fact, you may want to even turn there to see this verse. I want you to see this verse. Or If I would have been um, proactive, I could have had them put this ahead of time up there for us to look at this verse altogether. But uh, what's in your hand? It should be a Bible. And so you can take that Bible and turn to Ephesians 4 and look at two verses with me to see that God wants to use you and that your pastor wants God to use you. Ephesians 4, verse 10, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. The he, the antecedent to that is God. God gave, uh, to to summarize, some um, some of these offices have passed, but to summarize, God gave pastors and teachers, and then the next verse says, for and I've lost my spot, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, let's all do something. Don't mark in your Bible. Don't do this in your Bible, but just mentally do this. I want you to eliminate the commas that are in that verse and think about what it said in the prior verse. God gave pastors for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That means that that doesn't, this verse doesn't say that the pastor has three jobs. The, the job of the pastor is for the perfecting of the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry and that work of the ministry is the edifying of the body of Christ. If we read it all as one sentence and don't break it up with the commas, we can see that. And what that means is that God gave you a pastor so that you would learn how to do the work of the ministry so that you could edify each other. It's not one man's job to do all the edifying of the body. It's each of our responsibilities to edify the body and to do the work of the ministry. You say, oh, but he's the only one called into the ministry. Let me tell you about the word ministry. I'm glad you asked. The Greek word there for ministry. i got to find it in my notes now to make sure I don't mess it up. Uh, Diakonias is the word. That first part of that word sounds like a word that you know. Deacon. And what's a deacon? Oh, the deacons are the most important people in the church, just next to the pastor, right? What is a deacon? Do you know what that word actually, we use the uh, transliterated word, but the actual definition of that is it's a servant. So when we see that word work of the ministry, the diaconius, that is the service or the servanthood. That means we all have a duty as a servant to serve the Lord, to take what's in our hand and to serve him with it. 
And your pastor would like to see that happen because that is the fulfillment of his work is whenever you take up the work and begin edifying the body of Christ and begin serving one another in love. Thirdly, every person that truly loves you wants you to be used by God and to be all that you can for him. You say, well, I don't know about that. I've got some Well, there's a difference between love and infatuation. There's a difference between love and affection. But those who, especially those who love God, that really love God, not just lip service love God, but that truly love God, will want you to surrender what's in your hand to the Lord to be used of Him and to be used to the maximum for Him. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure about that because I have someone that loves me or someone that I love that doesn't have that same goal for me. I'm not here to debate whether or not they do. I'm here to tell you that that person does not have your best interest at heart. Understand that. Jesus actually tells his disciples that in some cases, you're going to have to forsake father and mother and grandfather and grandmother and sons and daughters and things like that in order to serve the Lord because those individuals may not have a heart for God. Anyway, let's keep going here. Um, we come back to Exodus 4. We got the question, what is in thine hand? Moses answered, a rod. And then God says in verse 3, cast it on the ground. God is going to ask you to do one or maybe two things with what is in your hand. This will be the shortest outline that I've ever had for a message in my life because it's just two words. The first thing that God will ask you to do with what is in your hand is to yield it. What's in your hand? He says a rod. And God doesn't say, well, you take that rod and you hug it, hold it very close, hold it tight to your chest, sleep with it at night, you know. Take it, make sure you never set that rod down. The first thing he tells him to do, cast it on the ground. He's telling Moses to examine your hand, and then to empty your hand. He is saying to open your hand and empty it. What does this rod represent? Well, we see all the things that the rod would do later on, but what does the rod represent in Moses' life to this point? The rod represented Moses' career for the last 40 years. And God said, put it down. The rod represented future income for Moses. See, Moses wasn't exactly putting his Egyptian education to use out there on the backside of the desert. He was tending sheep. And when you think about this, what else was Moses qualified to do? He was kind of stuck in a dead-end job, you might say. He's just out there tending sheep, and if he doesn't have, he doesn't have his rod, he gets rid of the thing that he uses to beat off intruders and the thing that he uses in his shepherding, well, then what does he have left after that? This represents his career for the last 40 years. It represents future income. Um, there's a, a, a notable and famous missionary that you guys might know who, who did this, this very thing. I don't know if the career was 40 years, but 
His name is Mike Blackburn. Have you heard that name before? Anybody know the name of that missionary who at an advanced age, even, even a little older than I am, said, I'm laying it down. I'm laying down my rod. I've been on deputation in many churches, 200-something churches. I can't, I don't really know. I quit, I quit counting after a while. But uh, I said to many pastors that, you know, we're probably a bit of an anomaly coming as 40-something-year-olds at that time. Uh, now my um, odometer has rolled over. Uh, in that first digit now. I got an AARP application <laughs> in the mail the other day. I'm like, thank you very much. <laughs> but I said to some of these pastors, you know, we're probably outside the norm. You know, you're probably most of the missionaries that you get in are kids out of college, 20s, 30s, stuff like that. And so many of them have said, you know, what we've seen a lot of in these past few years We've seen people who have had careers, who have, who have um, lived quite a while going into missions work. Why is that? I think I know the answer, and I'll share it with you a little later. The rod represented how Moses would protect himself and his sheep from predators. The rod was Moses' security. And I ask you the same thing. Are you prepared to abandon your security blanket? when God asks you what's in your hand and then to cast it on the ground. Now, you might say this. I am afraid to open my hand and give God what I value most. Think through this with me. You trust him with your soul for eternity, but you don't trust him for the fears you have here on this earth. Uh, you see him as a loving father that would give you the greatest gift known to mankind, that being the only begotten son of God. But you think that he would take away what you enjoy and laid you with all things horrible? If he's willing to give you the greatest gift there is, uh, as Jesus said uh, there in Matthew 6 or Matthew 7, uh, would you ask a fish but God give you a serpent? or a scorpion, or a stone? No. Now here's the truth, so I don't paint it, so I don't sugarcoat it too much. God may indeed ask you to cast something on the ground, never to retrieve it again. Whatever is sinful, and whatever would harm you, he asks you to lay down and leave behind. By the way, the effects of sin are always harmful. The effects of sin are always harmful. There are no pet sins. There are no sins that have no consequence. It's not a crime that hurts nobody. It's going to hurt somebody. They're going to hurt you. And most sins hurt others as well. The effects of sin are always harmful, not because God is actively in heaven looking to crack the whip on you every time you disobey, it's just that the wages of sin is death. We've got a verse that tells us that. And the effects of sin is always harmful, not because God sits by waiting to, to bust you whenever you break a law. 
death is the natural byproduct of sin and pain is a part of that and God loves you enough to forbid what's bad for you. Other things that you might cast on the ground and never pick back up are these. See, understand that God gives you new goals after your new birth. One is to be ever transforming into the image of his son. The other is to press for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So what doesn't look like Jesus Christ needs to be chipped away from us so that we do look like him. And to pursue the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, we are to set aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. We find in 1 Corinthians 3 the principle of rewards and losses. And from that we see that God desires that we produce less wood, hay, and stubble and produce more gold, silver, and precious stones. And he's going to ask us to lay down what makes kindling and to keep and to hold on to what will survive the test of fire. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. God just wants you to remove the entanglements from your own life. What's in your hand? Cast it on the ground. Point number two. Does this mean we're halfway done with the sermon? I don't know. Maybe. But the first thing God asks you to do is to yield what's in your hand. And the second thing, after you have yielded what's in your hand, then everything that is useful for God's service, he then asks you to wield. Yield and then wield. Let's do a little rundown of some things that God has asked people to wield in the service of the king. We'll just do a little whirlwind tour right through the Bible. In the book of Judges, there's some very interesting ones. Uh, in chapter 3, Shamgar used a sharp stick, an ox goat, to kill 600 Philistines. Jail in Judges chapter 4 knocked off Sisera, who was captain of the army of Canaan, with a bottle of milk and a tent stake. In Judges chapter 7, Gideon uses the time-honored weapons that are the choice of armies still today, trumpets and lanterns. We all know about Samson who used the jawbone of a donkey to kill a thousand enemies. But think about the donkey of Balaam who used his jawbone to protect his master from certain death at the hands of the angel. We can't not mention David and his sling, right? No Sunday school teacher in here would forgive me if I overlooked that one. David's mighty men get some shout-outs. Uh, Abishai killed 300 at one time with a spear. And Jashobim, not to be outdone, did the same thing. Killed 300 with a spear at one time. Um, either a really long spear or he took time to remove the spear and then get somebody else. Probably the latter. Uh, but those guys were just rookies compared to a fellow named Edino uh, because he killed 800 at once with his spear. So he, he's got the record. Benaiah, uh, another captain of David's mighty men, fought a seven and a half foot tall Egyptian warrior who had a spear while he had nothing but a staff, a shepherd's crook. He used that shepherd's crook to take the spear away from the Egyptian and then killed him with his own spear. I mean, 
you know, how, how you feel dying with, at the hands of your own spear. But uh, Benaiah did that. By the way, all the folks that we've mentioned so far, they accomplished what they did because they're the best warriors known to man, right? Why? Because the same thing that was true of Moses, what God promised him, he also did for them, and it was those five simple words, I will be with thee. God was with these men and animals. I'll give you some non-battlefield examples. These men had something in their hands or heads or hearts that God used in a great way. David used his harp to soothe the savage beast known as King Saul. Does God still use music today to perform a mighty work of ministry? You better believe he does. Joseph had the skill of management that was utilized under Potiphar and then in the prison and then under Pharaoh to save much people alive, as he says in Genesis 50, verse 20. Elisha took Elijah's mantle after Elijah earlier had parted the Jordan River by smiting it with the mantle. Elisha comes back and says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And then smites the Jordan River again and parts the water. Another time. And Elisha was so full of God that even after he died and was buried in a cave that a dead man was cast into that cave because there wasn't time to bury him. And whenever that dead man hit the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. What's in thy hand? Or maybe it was even Elijah's hand bones. Elisha's hand bones that brought him back to life. Uh, we think of some, some others. Paul was a man of learning, of, of high IQ, I believe, and a man of, of education. He was a scholarly Pharisee before his conversion, and God used that Old Testament knowledge to allow him to write more than half of the New Testament. I mean, can you believe that God would even use smart people? He will. Somebody told me that, that he, that he would. Um, we think of Mary who broke the seal on the alabaster box, alabaster jar to anoint Jesus in advance of his burial. And Jesus said at that time, and it's still true today, that everywhere the gospel is preached, there will be made a memorial unto her. Joseph of Arimathea was a man of wealth who provided the setting for three major events surrounding the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. He provided, first of all, the borrowed tomb, and he provided the upper room where both the Last Supper and the Pentecost prayer meeting were held. Now, if you're thinking, hey, I'd be willing to be the Joseph of Arimathea if the Lord would give me great wealth. You know, that mega millions, is up, I saw the billboards riding in, and I was like, what does that say? Big money, but just take your money and put it in the, in the plate. That will be the best use of it rather than funding education. Right. By the way, same, th same goes for the new casino that's built down there near, near my house in case you wondered, would the Lord have me do that? You don't have to wonder. Um, a little unnamed boy with a lunch for one was willing to surrender two fish and five biscuits. I'm convinced it was biscuits. It says loaves, but... Uh, just small pieces of bread. He was willing to surrender that to the Lord to feed a multitude 
that even Joseph of Arimathea might struggle to finance. In all these things, we see that there is nothing too big or too small for God to use. God simply asks, what's in your hand? Yield it. And those things that are good, he asks you, like he asked Moses to pick that stick back up. Now, wield it. Yield it, then wield it. Years ago, there was a shipwreck off America's coasts. The ship struck upon a sunken rock and the lifeboat put out to rescue the crew. The boat drew near the sinking ship and all got in safely except the captain and the first mate. Get aboard, said the captain to the mate. Wait a minute, captain. And he dived down to the companionway ladder to fetch something from the cabin. The captain saw the folly of the act and jumped into the lifeboat, hoping that the mate would soon follow. To stay beside the sinking ship was dangerous and the boat moved to wait for the mate to appear. Before he could do so, a great wave struck the vessel. She rolled over and sank, and the man cooped up in the cabin was drowned. A few days later, divers went out to see what could be done with the vessel, and they found the corpse of the mate in the cabin. In his hand was something tightly grasped. They brought him on deck and unclasped his clenched fist. His purse fell out. They opened it, and it contained 36 cents. The man had lost his life. For 36 cents. We think of Bible examples. Judas gave up heaven for 30 pieces of silver. Demas might be in heaven, but he left Paul's side in ministry because of his love for the things of the world. We think about those, even from a secular standpoint, who will lose their career because of a DUI. We think of men in ministry who will give up their position for a few moments of pleasure. These are all negative things that should be laid down, should be yielded for the cause of Christ. Cast them on the ground. They will hinder your ability to serve God. Decide today that you will take up what is useful for the Lord and let it be used for Him. The founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, wrote thousands of sermons and hundreds of books and papers. But to me, the most profound thing he wrote consists of just eight words. Lord, let me not live to be useless. Whatever's in your hand, yield it, lay it down, and then what God instructs you to pick up, wield it, and use it for his honor and glory, and be the maximum of what you can be for the cause of Christ. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.